you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground. I'm your host, Phil. What we got on the show today, we're going to talk a little bit about school choice because that seems to be a big issue going on not only here in california well specifically here in california it's a big issue but it's also an issue going on across the country so we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with schools why are they holding out is there a better solution are we maybe primed are people ready for another solution that could be uh better in the long run for the children Uh, we're also going to talk about how now gavin newsom is trying desperately to uh, polish his image in the face of the recall. And then we're going to end with a article from the New York Times discussing how California progressivism is scaring the rest of progressives across the country. So let's get started with the uh, today's out of the gate monologue. In a recent video that made its way around the interwebs and social media, school board members of Oakley, California, were shown to have nothing but disdain for parents who are begging them to help get their children back in school. They talked down to parents with one lady saying she would beat the hell out of someone, another saying parents are whining because they want their babysitters back, and one insinuating that the parents want the kids out of the house because it is interfering with their precious pot smoking time. Abhorrent does not even begin to describe the statements these board members made. Their lack of empathy and caring shows that they are completely out of touch with reality, and they feel that they are not beholden to the wishes of the parents of these students. To some, it was shocking to actually hear these board members say these things. I believe many of us already knew how school officials viewed the general public, but nonetheless, it's still kind of shocking to hear it out loud. Combine this with the California Teachers Association digging in their heels and demanding ever more requirements before they even consider going back into the classroom, and the state of public education is suffering a massive PR crisis. Now, while most states have already gone back to school, including uber-liberal places like Chicago and New York, California seems to be stuck in a quagmire when it comes to getting teachers and students back into the classroom. Now, this is not to besmirch the hard work and dedication of many great teachers here in California. Many teachers become teachers because they are passionate about teaching and working with students. The problem is that they are part of a corrupt, bureaucratic, and out-of-date system that needs to be updated. However, just because the CTA does not wish to have kids back in classrooms does not mean in-person learning is not happening in California. Mostly, all private schools are open for in-person learning. They've implemented plenty of safety measures, and children are back to learning in person with teachers and not over Zoom. Due to this, there has been a rush of parents seeking to get their children into private schools. The discussion of school choice has never been more ripe than it is now. Now, if you're not familiar with the idea of school choice, it is basically a free market approach to schooling in America. The basic premise would be that instead of forcing kids to go to one school or the other due to their address, they would get a voucher from the government to use those school funds to choose the school they wish to go to. The result is a market-based approach which increases competition between schools. Instead of guaranteeing a flow of students year in and year out, schools would be forced to market and innovate to get them and their voucher money through the door. And not surprisingly, the biggest complaint from anti-school choices is, well, wait for it. That's right. You guessed it, that it's racist. 
However, black education advocate Chris Stewart argues that this notion that school choice is rooted in white Southerner racism is factually and historically inaccurate. He states that a study conducted by the Mackinac Center shows Democratic minority voters overwhelmingly favor school choice. A Harvard study showed that a school choice program in New York increased overall college enrollment among African-Americans by 24%. The National Bureau of Economic Research found that among poor children, school choice increased secondary school completed by 15 to 20%. Greg Forrester, a senior fellow at the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, states that school choice actually reduces segregation rather than increases it. Quote, he says, One finds no net effect on segregation from school choice. No empirical study has found that school choice increases racial segregation. Further, allowing for school choice breaks the link between where you live and what your children, what school your children go to. Your residential address due to your financial situation should have no impact impact on your child's education. This in turn allows parents to send their children to safer schools outside of the communities. Now, shouldn't we want all children to have the same access to great education rather than decide it simply on where they live? Finally, school choice saves taxpayers money. One study found that access to the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, because of its positive impact on graduation rates, produced a $2.62 return for every dollar spent on the voucher program. This is all due to the market-based approach. See, when you force schools to be accountable to the stakeholders, i.e. the parents who hold the vouchers and the money, Schools are forced to actually listen to their concerns. Schools are then required to become more innovative, more creative, and more efficient in how they run their programs. Currently, schools are beholden to one entity, and that's the government. To bring this full circle, the CTA and the Oakley School Board members have made it clear they don't really feel beholden to the parents. The only entity they have to negotiate with is the government, because that's where the money comes from. Now, switching this to a bottom-up approach changes the entire landscape. Now board members will have to worry about whether their programs are doing well, whether they have a good graduation rate, and whether they are doing enough to attract students. The list goes on and on, but the point is, with most public schools digging in their heels and turning a deaf ear to parents, the argument for school choice has never been in a stronger place. If California really wants to live up to its ideals of equality and innovation, they should begin to look at rolling out a strong school choice program. Now, of course, this is highly unlikely with Governor Newsom, who rakes in donations from teachers unions, but maybe a future governor, maybe a governor, let's say, who takes over after an upcoming recall. So this has been sort of the big issue, and I was, I was kind of struggling with what to talk about at the top of the show this week. And it wasn't until I was watching the local news here in San Diego at KUSI, and they were talking about how the CTA, which is California Teachers Association, seems to be really digging in their heels and asking for more and more stuff. One of the things they want is ventilation, which if they want improved ventilation, you'd literally have to go through every single school and install new ventilation, which could take months and a long time to do so. And these are these are public school teachers who are demanding this. Contrast with the fact that the CDC has come out repeatedly and said that children are really of no risk. President Biden said in a town hall recently that children are of no risk, that they will not spread it to mommy and daddy, and that mommy and daddy won't spread it to their children. So children are really at no risk of spreading COVID, which would conversely also mean that 
children are also not likely to spread it to their teachers, even if they have it. So that would make it even more safer. And the CDC has even come out and said, no, we don't need the teachers to go back or to be vaccinated, to go back and return to in-classroom learning. So in the face of all this, there can't seem to be a coherent argument on what needs to happen going forward. Um, the press secretary obviously doesn't really know the answer to it either. Probably has to circle back on that. But the science and the data is pretty clear when it comes to schools right now. And, and it's a sticking point. Right now in California, they're allowing youth sports to start, which is funny because on the local news this morning, they wagered that youth sports would be able to resume f- way before schools. And it's funny that the same day they wagered that in the same afternoon, they actually said that they're going to allow youth sports to uh, start again outdoors. But we're starting to see this issue with public schools. And, and I've said this before on this program that COVID has really kind of exposed a lot of the rot that is in government and bureaucracy, not only in California, but across the country, but especially here in California. We're starting to see what we maybe didn't really notice or people didn't really realize because it's just year in and year out. A lot of this stuff just things just happened. This was life. We were used to it. This was the norm. But now you're seeing what happens when public unions like the CTA hold too many of the cards and they're beholden really only to the government. And this idea of school choice is really to take the the power out of the hands of the government and put it back to the people. It's a very democratic process, really. And I've listed a couple of the links of where I got these studies and these stats from. So you can go and look at them yourselves on one of them. There is a whole documentary with this uh, advocate, Chris Stewart. So if you want to watch that as well, Uh, I didn't watch. I just read some of the article and looked at some of the studies. But there's there's a lot there to the idea of school choice and changing it up. And here in California, you're seeing the effects of it because you're seeing a lot of people who may have been getting school choice are now rushing to a lot of private schools to see if they can get their kids into some sort of maybe a Catholic school or Montessori school or something that is like a charter school, any sort of private school. So their kid could go back to in-person learning. Um, but on the confusion of what is happening out of the Biden administration, there is this video that I'm going to play for you. It's about two minutes long. Um, it is Simone Sanders. If you don't know who Simone Sanders is, Simone Sanders was a, uh, what do you call her, a contributor or a panelist in CNN. She was always on. She was always obviously bashing Trump. She hated Trump. Um, she flipped immediately and is now the senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Kamala Harris. Uh, so now she works in the White House. She's go. She goes back and forth between CNN and the White House. If you want any more evidence that you know the media and White House is in on it together. You have to look no further, but that's not really the point of this video. The point is that they, they they really can't get a coherent answer out of if the CDC director is saying it's safe for teachers to go back to school, regardless of vaccination. Why is the Biden administration not saying, OK, teachers, time for you to go back to school? So here's the clip. It's about two minutes long. It's, it's not a trick question, and I feel like you guys have treated it like a trick question. I think people oh. just want to know what the White House position is on whether or not teachers have to be vaccinated for kids to return safely to school. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, says the science is that teachers don't necessarily have to be vaccinated for kids to return. And I think people want to know what the White House position is on that. The White House position is that 
of and the president vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for receiving the vaccination along with other frontline workers and in at least 22 states in the district of columbia that's exactly what's happening prioritize is one thing and i think there's wide agreement they should be prioritized and why not is it necessary though that's the question it really is a yes no question well john i think the real question frankly if i can be frank here is what you're getting to is, is it safe for kids to go back to school? And the president it, it, and vice actually president... Actually not. In this case, that's not the question. The question is, is it safe for teachers to go back to school? And that's, and, that, that's a very specific question in this case. And again, I'm not sure. I don't understand why it's a hard question to answer. It, it may be that you want every teacher to be vaccinated. It may be the answer is, yeah, teachers should, if they can, be vaccinated before they return to school. But it's not necessary. Well, John, I think... The president has been clear. The vice president has mm. been clear. And I think I was really clear just now that it is the administration's position. The president and vice president believe that teachers should be prioritized for vaccinations. And in 22 states, at least, and the District of Columbia, that's exactly what is happening. You know, uh, look. I'll try one is... last time. I'll try one last time. Does, okay, the president, does the president feel that, that teachers have to be vaccinated in order for schools to, to open safely? Yes or no? The president believes that teachers should be prioritized for vaccination. His right. wife, Dr. Biden, the first lady, is a teacher. He knows the importance of teachers being in the classroom. The president and vice president also know, John, that teaching for many people is not just what they do. It is who they are. It is a calling. Me, uh... And teachers want to be in the classroom. Parents want students in the right. classroom. And we want to do so uh, safely and, and operating right. according to the science. All right. I'm not going to get a yes or no on that minimum so on that clip uh a lot of dancing around a lot of washington speak um simone sanders obviously didn't have a coherent yes or no answer uh like the cnn anchor was asking for uh john berman that's his name he was asking for a simple yes or no answer is it necessary for teachers to be vaccinated to go back to school and she couldn't really give a straight answer the one thing i've, I've kind of enjoyed during this first month of the Biden administration is I think the press secretary and a lot of people surrogates of the administration thought they were going to have a uh, love affair with the media. I thought they, I think they thought that it was going to be an extension of sort of the Obama years where uh, Obama uh, was generally loved a lot by uh, the media and fawned over. But so far, when they see a little bit of pushback, they don't really know how to respond to it. The press secretary, especially, uh, we all know her famous lines circle back, but she seems to get a little defensive over questions. She was kind of pressed on this issue as well. Someone asked about teachers and going back to school and vaccinations, and she didn't really have an answer and she got defensive over it. But you can hear Simone Sanders isn't she wouldn't give a yes or no answer whether President Biden actually believes that it's necessary for teachers to get vaccinated to go back to school, um, she wouldn't answer. And she just kept giving the same speech over and over again about how teachers should be prioritized, which isn't the question. I, I believe teachers should be prioritized. There's definitely uh, occupations out there if you are coming in contact with a lot of people and those people are coming in a lot of contact with other people, you should obviously be vaccinated. I think that's not the question here, whether they should be prioritized. The question is whether kids can return to school without the teachers being vaccinated. And if the CDC says, yes, they can return to school without being vaccinated, then it's one of those issues where will President Biden really step up and say, I, and I doubt it, same thing that's going on here with Gavin Newsom, will he step up and say, 
okay, we need you to go back to school. You're prioritized. You're going to get vaccinated. Here's the science. We need you to go back to school because these are the, 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 the deterious effects of Zoom learning, virtual learning, all that. I doubt it, though. And this is one of those issues where, again, the teachers unions across the country are very, very powerful. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. New Jersey has a very, very powerful teachers union. It's been sort of a thorn in the side of politics in New Jersey for a long time, especially if you're someone like a Republican. It's hard because the teachers union is so strong in New Jersey that it's hard to negotiate with them. And Governor Chris Christie tried to uh, renegotiate some sort of pension plan, but that's a whole other issue. We're not, this isn't the New Jersey underground. But the point is that teachers unions are very powerful. And we're seeing it here in California with the CTA and other teachers union is they're not budging on anything. And even when the science says, and this is always the, the weird dichotomy and the hypocrisy I find, is that science can be presented to a lot of these people and say, here's the science. The science is you don't need to be vaccinated. You're safe. The children are safe. We can do this safely. Very, very low risk. Yet there's a chance. I mean, there's a chance anything could happen. Someone could get sick. Uh, but the risk is very, very low. And if you're someone who's high risk and you're a teacher who's high risk, maybe you're older, you're, you know, you have an underlying comorbidity or something like that or an underlying condition, then yeah, absolutely. You, you have to make special exemptions. One size fit all is not going to work for everybody, but you have to give some wiggle room. Even though you present the science to these people, they still at the end of the day go, well, I, I'm not going to listen to this science. I want to listen to the science that benefits me the most. And teachers just don't want to really listen to the fact that they're, they're safe and they keep demanding more. Here in California, they keep demanding more. They want new ventilation in all the schools, which would be millions and millions of dollars to reventilate all the schools. Um, they want to make sure there's plenty of safety measures. Obviously, that makes sense. You want plenty of safety measures, any sort of PPE, stuff like that. But they don't seem to really be coming to the negotiating table in good faith. They're demanding a lot of things and they're not budging on a lot of things. And someone like Gavin Newsom, who obviously gets a lot of donations, he's supported by teachers unions, probably got big donations uh, for his gubernatorial. He's probably still getting donations for his reelection campaign from a lot of teachers unions. It's hard for a lot of these Democrats to negotiate and play hardball with teachers unions because the unions support them. So it's hard to play hardball with the unions that really are funding a lot of your campaigns. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these Democrats kind of shiver in their boots, not be able to really stand up to them. Now, again, how do you get rid of that? Well, it's like I said in the out-of-gate monologue, you start school choice. You go for school choice. School choice would break the back of teachers unions across the country. Why? Because it would take the power away from the government who allows these teachers unions to thrive and really um, grow unabated with as much power as they have. If you give people the choice to go to schools where they want to send their children, which they could look at the reviews, they could see which one looks best. Another thing to consider is there might be schools that are different for different people. You know, if there might be schools set up just for children with disabilities and, and learning issues, there could be schools like that. You could send your children to those schools instead of trying to send your kid to a normal public school and hope that there is a teacher's aide or someone who can help that child with a disability. The idea that you can actually pick out and be involved in your child's education 
this market-based approach would break the backs of these teachers unions. And this is the time I think if any if there's any time to look at school choice because it's usually not a sexy choice. People usually say again, this is really coming down to people don't really think about it because it's been this way forever and they're just used to it and this is how life is and it just passes us by. But now when there's this issue of you can't go to school and you want to send your kids to school, now that school choice has become even more popular. And if there was ever a chance for anybody to jump on a school choice platform and really push for it, I doubt anything would happen in a state like or or under a Biden administration, again, because Democrats are funded a lot by unions. But it could start in different states. I think in Arizona, they have a school choice program that is working out very well. They're starting to see very good results from it. There's school choice uh, programs all over the country. So I think the more school choice that happens throughout the states and states start to see, hey, this is actually working and it's working better than we expected. You might see more states implement it and it may become sort of a nationwide policy after a time. Because remember, the states are supposed to be what they call the laboratories of experiment. Uh, what When they decided to set up this federal society that we have, the states are really supposed to be these laboratories where they tried out things and they did things on their own. And if it worked in one state, maybe it, then it went over to another state and then they followed suit. Sort of the same thing with cannabis laws now. You're seeing it, was, it took one state to legalize it. It was Colorado. And then all of a sudden, all these other states followed suit and started to do the same thing. And before you know it, it kind of forces the federal government's hand where they say, okay, all these states are doing it. We better jump on it. So Something to really think about, and I think a lot of parents are really going to think about school choice. I think they're going to look at private schools, and I think this puts a bad taste in a lot of parents' mouths when it comes to seeing these videos, and they're not seeing teachers really rushing to get back into school um, and digging their heels in on a lot of things. And I understand there's people who have a lot of concerns, but at the same time, there's a lot of people who are also still doing their jobs Uh, in face of it. I mean, grocery workers seem to be the number one people out there always say, well, grocery workers never really stopped working. And you don't see a lot of grocery workers unionizing and saying they don't want to work. But that is an issue that we're seeing. Biden administration can't give a straight answer. Kamala Harris can't give a straight answer. Simone Sanders dances around the subject, talks about prioritizing, somehow always drops in Dr. Jill Biden, that she's a teacher and she understands and It seems like she was just kind of paying lip service to uh, the teachers unions who frankly support Democratic candidates. So you don't want to. And when you're that beholden to unions, sometimes it it kind of bites you in the ass that you're that beholden to unions because you can't you can't negotiate with them and you can't figure out ways forward. Um, All right. So moving on to the next subject. Outside of school choice, uh, this one thing I just, it's an article. You can read the whole article again, posted in the show links. Uh, it's from Cal Manners. It's talking about how Gavin Newsom is trying to change his persona a little bit. Um, and the biggest thing that you're starting to see when it comes to Gavin Newsom recently is he's done away with the webinars and the virtual uh, press conferences. So now you're starting to see him go around the state and he likes to do these outdoor, look at me, I'm working kind of thing. Uh, 
this sort of, well, here I am at this vaccination site. Here I am in San Diego. Here I am in Oakland. Here I am in LA. Look at me. I'm working really hard to get you vaccinations and stuff like that. And that's sort of one thing I think he's trying to do to change how his political image is, is because people tuned him out after a while with his web, his web-based press conferences. Cause after a while, people just don't really care to look at it anymore. But now that he's doing these outdoor, I guess people are more tuned in, but he's trying in vain. So again, Gavin Newsom is trying to act like this recall is not bothering him, but insiders are absolutely bothered by the fact that this recall is doing very, very well, that they've reached the 1.5 signatures required a month, well, a month before the deadline and that they're still continuing and they're pushing to get another 500,000 signatures. I mean, if they could break over 2 million, that'd be fantastic. That's their goal. But this absolutely has to be worrying Gavin Newsom at this point to be changing up everything that he's doing to kind of do away with this stuff to out of the blue, just get rid of the stay at home orders and the stay at home blankets over all the different regions. Now, I guess the the rumor is, is that this upcoming week, he's going to put a lot of places back into the red tier, uh, which means that there'll be a lot more indoor dining will be open. Gyms will be open. A lot more things will be open again. But I think at this point, it's it's way too late for Gavin Newsom. Um, I, I think that we've already reached the 1.5. They're still signing recalls. I don't think this is really going to change anything. It may change if he's trying, if he does go out for a recall. He's maybe just thinking, well, the recall is going to happen. So let me look as good as possible for the question of what whether I should be recalled or not. Um, the other thing that he's doing a lot of at these events is he's going to places that are democratically friendly to him. So in Oakland, he was there at a press conference with city mayor Libby Schaff. Uh, remember, she was the one who warned uh, all the illegal immigrants that there was a ICE contingency coming through, which was not actually true, uh, but she was interfering with federal law. She said, I can't tell you how lucky we are in California to have Gavin Newsom as our governor ring an endorsement. And then here in San Diego, newly elected Todd Gloria chimed in. Gavin Newsom has always done the right thing to protect public health, even when it's hard. So we're starting to see a lot of these Democrats coming out of the woodworks to support him. Um, when he's, when someone asked him whether or not this recall has any effect on him, he said, I'm not focusing on that at all. Uh, and, and the truth is now even President Biden is getting in on it. Well, I should say his press secretary tweeted out, in addition to sharing a commitment to a range of issues with Gavin Newsom from addressing the climate crisis to getting the pandemic under control, POTUS clearly opposes any effort to recall Gavin Newsom. Huh. Well, they're circling the wagons. And if the fact that President Biden has to step in shows there is a problem and He's trying in vain to change things. I think it's a little too late. It's way too late at this point. Like I said, it's way too late at this point to try and turn it around. I think enough people are pissed off that changing your image here and there, the damage is done. The damage has been long done at this point for him to kind of go back and and rehabilitate his image. Uh, and, and now he's all about, well, he wants to go to different businesses that they gave loans or grants to and show that he cares about small businesses. When in reality, it's too, it's too late. It's too late for every one business that he features on his Instagram that got some sort of grant or loan. There's probably hundreds of them that did not get any grants or loans and are struggling or out of business. 
So the damage is really done at this point. I don't think there's really much he can do to polish his image anymore. So it worries him. And I, it, it worries him enough that President Biden or his secretary, Jen Psaki, had to actually step in and tweet something in support of him. So this last article I want to talk about, uh, which is pretty interesting, it's from the New York Times. It's by Ezra Klein. If you don't know Ezra Klein, he's a very uh, progressive writer, very liberal writer. I think Ezra Klein, is he the one who ate brains or something on a show? Uh, he went around, he, he like went somewhere and he ate brains live on the show. Uh, anyway, but he's, he's a writer, a uh, very progressive writer. And he wrote this article titled California is making liberal squirm. If progressivism can't work here, why should the country believe it can work anywhere else? And I was surprised because I actually agreed with a lot of what Ezra Klein said. And I'll read some of it for you. And then I'll just, I'll give you my thoughts about, uh, about this article after it. Um, you may have heard that San Francisco's Board of Education voted six to one to rename 44 schools, stripping ancient racists of their laurels, but also Abraham Lincoln, Senator Dianne Feinstein. The history upon which these decisions were made was dodgy and the results occasionally bizarre. Paul Revere, for instance, was canceled for participating in a raid on indigenous Americans that was actually a raid on a British fort. In normal times, amusement would be the right response to a story like this. Cities should have idiosyncratic out there politics. You need to earn your, quote, keep X weird bumper stickers. And for all the Fox News hosts who's collapsed on their fanning couches, America isn't suffering from a national shortage of schools named for Abraham Lincoln. But San Francisco's public schools remain closed, no matter the name on the front. Quote, what I cannot understand is why the school board is advancing a plan to have all these schools renamed by April when there isn't a plan to have our kids back in the classroom by then. Uh, Mayor London Breed said in a statement, I do not want to dismiss the fears of teachers or parents, many living in crowded homes, who fear returning to classrooms during a pandemic. But the strongest evidence we have, again, we talked about this at the top of the show, suggests school openings do not pose major risk. This is Ezra Klein in the New York Times saying that school openings don't pose a major risk. When proper precautions are followed and their continued closure does terrible harm to students, with the worst consequences falling on the neediest children. And that's where this goes from wacky local news story to a reflection of a deeper problem. San Francisco is about 48% white, but that falls to 15% for children enrolled in its public schools. For all the city's vaunted progressivism, it has some of the highest private school enrollment numbers in the country, and many of those private schools have remained open. Again, like I talked about at the top of the show, it looks finally like the deal with the teachers union is near that could bring kids back to the classroom contingent on coronavirus cases continuing to fall statewide. But much damage has been done. This is why the school renamings were so galling to so many in San Francisco, including the mayor. It felt like an attack on symbols was being prioritized over the policies needed to now racial inequality. Uh, then he goes on to talk about how he loves California. He was born in California. He went to UCs, one of the UCs. Um, he says it's a remarkable place where tomorrow's problems and tomorrow's solutions vie with each other for primacy. California drives the technologies, cultures, and ideas that shape the entire world. But for that same very reason, our failures of governance worry me. Now, I've talked about this before. When I first came to California, that was stuff that I really was drawn to about California was I felt like you were kind of living in the future a little bit when you came to California. They had innovative solutions. They were doing things different. And it seemed like the stuff that they were doing kind of just made sense. We're like, oh, this actually makes sense. That's how the rest of the country should be doing it. Um, but 
I think they've gotten farther and farther away from that. So he goes on to say, California has the highest poverty rate in the nation. Well, we already knew that. When you factor in housing costs and vies for the top spot in income inequality too, there are bright spots in recent years. Electric grid modernization, a deeply progressive plan to tax the wealthy to fund poorer school districts. Not crazy about any of this. A prison population at a 30-year low, mostly due to the fact that they've really decriminalized a lot of things that are not good, like theft under $900 and a lot of low-level offenses have been reclassified, non-violent offenses um, under Prop 47, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, but there's a reason 130,000 more people leave than enter each year. California is dominated by Democrats, but many of the people Democrats claim to care about most can't afford to live there. There is an old finding in political science that Americans are symbolically conservative, but operationally liberal. I'm not really sure if that's true, and I don't know where he got that from, but we're going to roll with it. Americans talk like conservatives, but want to be governed like liberals. In California, the same split political personality exists, but in reverse. We're often symbolically liberal, but operationally conservative. Renaming closed schools is almost novelistically on point example, but it is not the most consequential. Uh, the median price for a home in California is more than $700,000. The state has four of the nation's five most expensive housing markets and a quarter of the nation's homeless residents. The root of the crisis is simple. It's very, very hard to build homes in California. When he ran for governor in 2018, Gavin Newsom promised the construction of 3.5 million housing units by 2025. Newsom won, but California has built fewer than 100,000 homes each year since. So far off the 3.5 million. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti persuaded Angelinos to pass a new sales tax to address the city's homelessness crisis. But the program has fallen far behind schedule, in part because homeowners fought the placing of shelters in their communities. And why not? This is stuff we think we've talked about before and how stuff like uh, placing a homeless community right off the beach in Venice Beach, uh, probably not great for surrounding property values. Some of this reflects the difficulty of wielding power in a state where authority is often fractured and decentralized, but that does not explain all of it. Watching SB 50, State Senator Scott Weiner's ambitious bill to allow dense construction near mass transit, fail has become an annual political ritual. Last year, Tony Atkins, the Democratic State Senator leader, sponsored a modest bill to allow duplexes on single-family lots. It passed the Senate and then passed the Assembly in slightly amended form. And then died because it was sent back to Senate with only three minutes left in the legislative session. All this state racked by history and a present of housing racism. This is a crisis that reveals California's conservatism, not the political conservatism that privatizes Medicare, but the temperamental conservatism that stands athwart change and yells stop. In much of San Francisco, you can't walk 20 feet without seeing a multicolored sign declaring that Black Lives Matter. Kindness is everything and no human being is legal. Those signs sit in yards zoned for single families and communities that organize against efforts to add new homes that would bring those values closer to reality. Poorer families, disproportionately non-white and immigrant, are pushed into long commutes, overcrowded housing, and homelessness. Moving on, moving on, moving on. Once you start looking for this pattern, you see it everywhere. California talks a big game on climate change, but even with billions of dollars in federal funding, it couldn't build a high-speed rail between Los Angeles and San Francisco. The project was choked by pricey consultants, private land negotiations, endless environmental reviews, county government suing the state government has been shrunk to a line connecting the mid-sized cities of Bakersfield and Merced, and even that is horribly over budget and behind schedule. 
the vaccine rollout in California was marred by overly complex eligibility criteria that slowed the pace of vaccinations terribly in the early days. Those regulations were written with good intentions as California politicians worried over how to balance speed and equity. The result, however, wasn't fairness, but sluggishness and California lagged behind the rest of the nation for the first weeks of the effort. Eventually, the state reversed course and simplified eligibility. Uh, it goes on to talk about all the stuff um, that was voted down, all the conservative propositions that we've talked about. The California Environmental Quality Act wasn't passed to stop mass transit, a fact California finally acknowledged when it recently passed legislation carving out exemptions. The profusion of councils and public hearings that let NIMBYs block, uh, NIMBYs is a term for not in my backyard if you don't know that, block new homes are a legacy of progressivism that want to stop developers from slicing communities up with highways, not help wealthy homeowners fight affordable apartments. California wants to be the future, but its governing institutions are stuck in the past. Its structures of decision making are too often, uh, are making too often privileged incumbents who like things the way they are over those who need them. All right, wrapping it up. In California, taking that snare seriously might mean worrying less about the name of the school than whether there are children inside it, as Mayor Breed has been insisting. It might mean worrying less about the sign in the yard than the medium home price on the block. And yes, it might mean worrying less about a cumbersome process that claims to be about environmental protection and more about how to speed along projects that will lead to environmental justice. There is a danger, not just in California, but everywhere, that politics becomes an aesthetic rather than a program. It's a danger on the right where Donald Trump modeled a presidency that cared more about retweets than bills, but it's also a danger on the left where the symbols of progressivism are often preferred to the sacrificing of risk those ideals demand. California is the biggest state in the nation, and one where Democrats hold total control of the government carries a special burden. If progressivism cannot work here, why should the country believe it can work anywhere else? I hope California keeps being weird, but it needs to do better. Um... I, there's a lot I agree with, and I was surprised when I read this article. I thought it was a great article um, because I, I agree with a lot of it. I mean, obviously, his little quips about progressivism and stuff like that, but he, he nails it on the head when it comes to California. And I wrote an article about this years ago uh, on Medium, and I actually, you know, I'll post the link to it in the show notes if you want to go read it yourself. But it was basically the idea that California liberals don't care about the poor in California. And this was sort of the same idea that Ezra Klein, I think, is trying to get to. This idea that Californians aren't really implementing policies that help the poor or the needy or for equality or for progressivism. Instead, they do a lot of things that look good on paper, but in the end, don't really help the people that they seek to help. For example, one of the biggest things, and this was right around the time that the gas tax was being proposed to be uh, revoked, that... The gas tax is one of those things that it's really a regressive tax on the lower class. And while they think it's a good idea because it helps to fix roads and green energy and all that stuff, it's really a regressive tax on the poor because now if instead of deciding whether you can put food on the table or fill up your car, you're going to have to decide between both in a lot of lower, uh, lower income communities. It makes it a lot harder. And a lot of things California does makes it even more increasingly hard to live here. It makes it harder on the cost of living. It makes it hard in home home prices. So it makes it harder and people are being squeezed out. But I think he absolutely hits it on the head that a lot of these things are not really progressive operationally, but instead they are just for symbols. And 
you see a lot of these bills that are being passed, like, for example, the reparations committee that was started by Shirley Weber, who's now the secretary of state, Shirley Weber. I don't know if she's going to keep doing it now that she's out of the assembly. It may just die where it is. Um, by the way, if you're in the 79th district, make sure you vote for Marco Contreras. Uh, but that's something that I don't think really had any implication to help Californians. When you look at really what California needs to do, it's not really doing what it needs to do. And if you have someone like Gavin Newsom is proposing that he's going to help build all these homes, again, I don't think the government should be involved in building homes because that's our tax dollars. I think really what they have to do, like Ezra Klein said, is let the is kind of loosen up these regulations a little bit so people can actually build and make it affordable to build uh, more housing units to increase the demand in certain parts of California, especially near transit where people can, you know, if they can't afford to have a car or something like that. But the biggest point is, is that California is really stuck in this idea of they just do weird things that don't really end up helping people. And it looks good and people feel good about themselves and renaming schools because it's cool to do and say that this person was racist and this person did something way back in the history of the annals of history and we're judging them by a 2021 standard and they're racist so we're going to rename this school and that school meanwhile these schools are closed and a lot of these public schools which are not only just for education they are for a lot of places lower income communities especially they are a safe place for these children to go. Sometimes for a lot of these lower income students, it's a place where they can go get a meal. It's a place where they can go when their parents are at work and their parents can't afford to hire a babysitter or put them in daycare or something like that. So it hurts the lowest, uh, the lower communities, lower income communities here in California. And that symbolism is, I think people are starting to look through it and say, you know, I, I, I want solutions. I don't want to see these symbolic gestures anymore. These symbolic gestures don't do anything. They don't decrease the price of housing. They don't make it more affordable. They don't increase the price of gas. They don't make it more affordable to live here. They don't make it easier to open a business or get hired or, you know, the taxes are too high. Those are things that I think that they that Ezra Klein is really getting to. And I, I agree with him wholeheartedly, even though we couldn't be um, more on the opposite sides of the spectrum, which is why I think California is in a weird spot right now politically. And I think a lot of people, we've had these discussions on lives about who we think are the best candidates to run. And I've always said, I don't really care. In California with a jungle primary, I, if it's a candidate who says he's going to do X, Y, and Z, he says he's going to make it easier for businesses to open up and stay open. He's going to get rid of the minimum franchise tax fee. He's going to lower business taxes. He's going to uh, help with housing prices, stuff like that. I don't care if you have a D or an R next to your name. Those are the things that are important. We need solutions. This isn't really about blue, red, or what team you're on. We really need to create a coalition of people who believe in real solutions in California. And does it require a little bit from this progressive bucket? And does it require a little bit from this conservative bucket in the sense of, do we need to clean up government? Do we need to destroy the bureaucracy? Uh, do we need to get rid of the bloat in California government, but also be a little bit more nimble so that we can be progressive? Those are the questions California really has to struggle with. And right now with the recall going forward, and I don't think anybody ever thought that in a deep blue state like this, that a recall of a Democrat governor would actually happen in a state like this, but it looks like it's going to happen. And, it, you know, you're going to need someone who can step up and say, I'm gonna, I can build a coalition of people 
uh, a coalition of voters and people who support me that just want California solutions. And it's not right, middle or left. It's a little bit of everything. And we need to figure out real solutions, not symbolic solutions, not solutions where it's just all about checking those boxes and getting those, those virtual signal points. It's about getting those real, real solutions. Um, so with that, I'm going to end today. As always, uh, this podcast comes out every Friday afternoon. If you like it, subscribe, like, and review. If you ever want to ask me a question or a topic you want to hear on the show, go to California underground at protonmail.com. You can email me a question or something there. You can also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm forward slash California underground. And right there on the webpage, you can hit the message button. It'll record a message. It's like you're calling into the show, uh, which is fun to do. And um, yeah, that's it. Oh, Coffee and California Politics every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Instagram live. Follow me on Instagram, California Underground. And that's basically it. I'll see you on the next one. For listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it, and follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 